Well, have you ever thought about what is it that brings freedom? Our modern uh, American culture says that uh, freedom consists of a life without restrictions, a life without rules, boundaries, uh, or anyone else uh, being able to, to tell you what you can or cannot do. Or in essence, also now what, what you can or cannot be. To the founding fathers of our nations, true freedom consisted uh, of an ordered liberty. And to them, there were certain inalienable rights uh, that everyone had the, the privilege of uh, pursuing. Right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and the, the first ten amendments uh, in our Constitution is known as the, the Bill of Rights laid out those freedoms uh, that... The Founding Fathers felt should never be violated and must be protected if we are to have freedom. But then 2,000 years ago, the, the, the Jewish people believed that the law of God gave them freedom. Uh, that the law was the truth and it was the study of the law that made someone free. And therefore, as those who had possessed the law and who were given the covenants of God... They thought that they were a free people, regardless of whether or not uh, they were under the authority of another political power. They also believed that as descendants of Abraham, that they held a privileged position in the world, a position that, that guaranteed their freedom. So again, I ask, what is it that brings freedom? Is freedom the absence of rules? Like our culture today says, is freedom uh, a, a certain set of rules that will help uh, guard and order society? Is freedom found in our physical lineage? Oh, just as Jews of the, the 21st or the, the first century believed themselves to be free merely because of who they were, I think we as Americans can also fall into that same trap. In 21st century America, we can think of ourselves as being free simply because we are Americans, right? Well, we have uh, certain rights and privileges. But if we have unknowingly fallen into that way of thinking that just because we are Americans that we are free, if, if we have fallen into that way of thinking, I think what Jesus is going to say this morning is going to come as a heavy blow to our hearts. Because in this passage, we're going to, to see the very nature of what true freedom is and how we would obtain such freedom. And I would, I would summarize it in this way, that Jesus is the truth and true freedom comes in knowing him, obeying him, and trusting in the freedom that he purchased for us on the cross. That's how we will experience true freedom. Now, we, we're going to continue studying in John chapter 8. Uh, we're parachuting back down into it. And I would remind you that uh, as we're, we're studying John 8, this is the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, also known as the, the Feast of Booths. Uh, and Jesus and his opponents are engaged in a debate uh, in the temple complex, specifically in uh, the court of the women there in the temple. And the debate has uh, raged on uh, concerning uh, 
the authority of Jesus' testimony, uh, the identity of Jesus' father, and even as we saw last week, the identity of Jesus himself, where Jesus said to them, you really won't know who he is until he is lifted up on the cross. Until he is crucified, they won't truly understand all that he is saying and all that he is. But in our verses this morning, there's going to be a little bit of a, uh, a change of uh, speeds, a change of uh, direction. And because in verse 30, as we're going to see, Jesus uh, stops addressing uh, his opponent so much as he is going to begin addressing a group of people who have begun to believe in him. Verse 30 and 31 in John chapter 8, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. That's the, the context, uh, and it's going to be important to keep this in mind as we study this passage, that Jesus is speaking to uh, people who have recently said that they are following him, they are believing in him, and he's going to speak to them about what it really means to follow him. Uh, what it really means to be one of his disciples. And he's going to, to establish this unbreakable relationship between being one of his disciples uh, and following the truth. And this is what we're going to, uh, to see as, as Jesus lays this out. He's going to teach these believers uh, about the power of the truth. What the truth does. Uh, and it, because the truth is not bound by time, uh, if something is true, it's always going to be true, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, uh, then what, is going, what Jesus is going to say to them and what he's going to, to lay out for them is just as applicable to us today. Uh, and as Jesus is going to, to teach them about the power of the truth, he's going to, to do this by pointing to three different experiences uh, and how the, the truth uh, plays a role in each of these experiences. And we're going to see this in verses 30 through 36. Uh, but uh, we're going to take it kind of one, one portion at a time. Uh, and, and the first experience that Jesus is going to, to point to in laying out the power of the truth is found in verses 30 through 32. Uh, and you could say it in this way, that, that he's going to point to the experience of genuine disciples. And what's going to be the experience of genuine disciples of Christ? obedience, knowledge, and freedom. If you look with me at those verses, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, Jesus says these words and uh, he, he makes it a conditional statement and he's speaking to these uh, those who have uh, said that they are beginning to follow him he says if you abide in my word the implication then you are truly my disciples and, and the implication of this is saying that making it a conditional statement implies that there is a category of disciples who are not true now, there's a category of believers who are not genuine believers. Merely knowing his name or, or giving uh, assent or affirmation uh, to who he is is not the same as truly being his disciple, of truly knowing him in a saving way. Uh, and throughout his gospel, 
the Apostle John has been stating that repeatedly. If you, if you turn back in John's Gospel to John chapter 2. Now at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, and a similar thing is happening. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing... But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So they were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. If you look at the end of John chapter 6, in verse 60, after Jesus had been teaching for some time, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There were many disciples who were not disciples for long. And what Jesus is is seeing here in John chapter 8, that there is one distinguishing mark of those who are truly his disciples, and that is that they will abide, they will remain, they will continue in his word. Okay, that, that's the, this, the one abiding, distinguishing characteristic. But then that's also going to have two results uh, in the life of his disciples. Right? They will abide in his word, and then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. But I want to look at all three of these characteristics kind of together. This is what should characterize genuine disciples. Right? Uh, the first characteristic, a genuine disciple will obey Christ's word. This is going to be a key theme later on in John's gospel uh, in chapters 14 and 15 when when Jesus is uh, just finished the last supper and now he's teaching his uh, disciples. He's really going to, to hammer home. You must abide. You must remain in him and in his teaching. John 15, 5, uh, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one commentator says, The measure of any disciple is the ability to hold to the master's teaching. If you claim to be someone's disciple, you're going to follow what they say. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus, uh, in speaking with a group of people, says, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Now, there's a discrepancy there. Why are you saying, you're my teacher, I'm going to follow you, you're my master, but then you disregard what Jesus says? And this is going to be the, the first and, and biggest characteristic of those who are truly disciples of Christ. They will abide and remain in the word of Christ. Now, now this doesn't mean that there's going to be perfect obedience. Okay? Now, there, we will always follow Christ imperfectly. But when we do follow him imperfectly, we're going to be quick to acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, and turn back to following Christ. And ultimately, every area of our life should be submitted to his lordship and a true disciple will have jesus as lord and master of every single area he's the the commanding general he gives the marching orders and we are quick to to follow and obey them completely that's what jesus is saying here but then there's a second characteristic 
of genuine disciples, uh, if, if they are abiding in Christ's word, then the natural result is, and you will know the truth. Right? If, if you are abiding in Christ's word, you are going to know his word. You are going to know the truth. And remember, Jesus himself is the truth, and he is the one who reveals the truth to us. Uh, and so genuine disciples are going to be characterized uh, by a knowledge of uh, Christ's word and a submission to that. Uh, but uh, in, again, this follows logically because you can't abide or remain in what you don't know. Right? You can't obey what you have not been told and taught. And that's the, the importance of, first and foremost, abiding in the Word of Christ. And this is always the first step in spiritual growth. Right? It's not the only step in spiritual growth. Right? Knowledge is the beginning, but it's, uh, obeying Christ is, is so much more. Now, that's what we talk about on a regular basis in our midweek growth groups. Right? That we don't just study God's Word to know the answer for the test. Right? We study God's word because we want to, to know it and obey it. Uh, and our knowledge of who God is and what he has revealed to us in Scripture should then lead to uh, a growing faith, a, go, a growing trust and conviction that God's word is true. Uh, and as we grow in knowledge and faith, that then changes and transforms our inner character and then leads to an outward uh, external obedience in our actions. And that's why we encourage uh, us, each of us to, to study God's word in that way, because that is how we grow spiritually. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. If you're truly his disciples, you won't just know what he teaches, but you will obey. You will remain in the things that he teaches. That is the exhortation here. So genuine disciples will know the truth. They will abide in that truth. But then that leads to a third characteristic, that genuine disciples will live in freedom. And this, this characteristic flows out of the first two. That's what Jesus says, of, hey, if you abide in his word, then you are truly his disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will... Come on, you guys can say it. The truth will... Yeah, those are famous words, right? If you began that sentence just like I did, most unbelievers could finish it for you. If you said, the truth will, they'll fill in the blanks. They know that. These words are so famous. that They are well known, but, but most people don't comprehend what is actually being said. They think of truth in an abstract way. And yes, truth is always good. And the truth does set free just generally. Uh, that, that is a, uh, an actual principle. But specifically, Jesus here is not saying that, yes, truth in a general sense will set you free. He's saying specifically the truth about him, who he is, what he has done. That's what he is saying. That is what will really and truly set someone free. But then the other question is, what do we need to be set free from? Really what is going to be shown here is that we need to be set free from the sin that naturally enslaves us. And we know that from verse 34. You and I have the, the benefit and the blessing of seeing this conversation 
on paper and knowing where Jesus is going. In verse 34, Jesus is going to answer the, the Jews' questions. He's going to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But genuine disciples of Jesus have been set free from the power of the sin that dwells within us. And again, this does not mean that genuine disciples of Christ will never sin, but rather that we have the freedom to obey God or to disobey God. Where previously, without freedom in Christ, sinners are bound only to sin, to only do what they want. And even in the the things where they would maybe be in obedience to God, we're like, I haven't murdered anyone today. That's an obedience to God, right? I'm doing pretty good. Well, even, even in those moments of obedience, you do it with the wrong heart. You do it with the wrong motive. We are all slaves to sin. And Christ is the one who grants us freedom from the power of sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 builds upon this truth. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is how we are to view ourselves as disciples of Christ. One of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, would put it this way, that the Lord Jesus has given sin a mortal wound by his death And by his spirit, by the communication of grace to the soul, thus sin shall never recover its strength and shall die a lingering death in the souls of the saints. It is like a tree cut at the root with a serious gash and must die soon. Though for a time it may flourish, it may have leaves and fruit, and yet it secretly dies and will very shortly wither and perish. Christ did not all at once die upon the cross, and so also the slaying of sin is gradual in the souls of the saints. And Christ has given such a mortal blow, it will never recover. That's what we, what we see. Christ has given a mortal blow to the sin in our hearts and in our lives. And we are called to continue to battle against that sin, even as it is dying within us. That that battle doesn't cease once we have come to know Christ and are truly his disciples. No, we're actually now free to see all of the sin in our lives. Right? Anyone who has been walking with Christ for a time, it's not that you, you, you see, well, let me put it this way. You see external sin diminishing. Right? Fewer and fewer outbursts of anger. Fewer and fewer patterns of sin. But as we grow in Christ, what do we begin to see within our own hearts over time? The, the absolute depth of our own sinfulness. What we see all of those selfish desires, all of those prideful, boastful thoughts. We see all of the sin that takes place within us, even as the external sins are diminishing. 
Again, this is the experience of genuine disciples of Christ. There will be in us an ongoing, day-by-day, continual obedience to Christ's Word, a continual growing in the knowledge of the truth, and a continual growing in freedom from the power of sin that used to enslave us. And our progress and our speed in these things is going to be unique to each of us. Some of us uh, grow exponentially really fast. Some of us grow slowly. Sometimes there's dramatic seasons of growth uh, in our lives. Sort of like that that junior high student who's 5'1 in 6th grade and then 6' by the end of 8th grade. Just like keeps growing uh, overnight, every single night. Sometimes it happens that way. And other times we, we begin to grow stagnant as Christians. Uh, there's periods in our lives where we, we cease to grow. And we're building upon past historical spiritual experiences, things that we've learned in the past, but we're not growing right now. But the experience of genuine disciples will be a continual abiding in His Word, continual growth and continual freedom from sin. Now, as I said, we have this advantage of being able to see this entire conversation written out for us on paper. And we understand that when Jesus said, you will be free, we know that he's speaking about sin. But, but his audience there in the temple that day, these Jews are saying, what are you talking about? What do you mean that we will be set free? And that leads us to the, the second experience that we're, we're going to, to see here, and that's going to be in verses 33 and 34. And this is the experience of all humanity. And it's the exact opposite of what genuine disciples experience. If genuine disciples experience obedience, knowledge, and freedom, all humanity experiences disobedience, ignorance, and slavery. This is what Jesus says. The the Jews question in verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now what we see here is the, the identity or how they viewed their identity of the Jews. Bruce talked about this this morning, uh, that our identity is intimately connected with what we're going to be worshiping. So the Jews thought of themselves first and foremost as children of Abraham, and they assumed that that status as, of being children of Abraham gave them uh, special privileges in their relationship with the Lord. They were a special anointed people. And they, they say, hey, we are children of Abraham, and this is going to be uh, a recurring theme in the rest of John chapter 8. So we'll, we'll talk more about that statement there. But they also emphatically say that they have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, some of you who have been reading your Bibles, you may say, wait a second. Like, there's basically no one around them that the Jews haven't been slaves to. Like, if you read the Bible, they were slaves uh, They were slaves to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans, even during Christ's time. So what in the world are they saying here? Well, the, the emphasis is that they never considered themselves to be the slaves or servants of anyone. Even if there was another political power in authority over them because they had the law, 
and the Word of God, they always felt that they were free. And their question at the end of verse 33, I think it's, it's just dripping with pride and a challenging of what Jesus is saying. Right? How is it that you say you will become free? They do not see themselves as an enslaved people. And so they see absolutely no need for someone to come and set them free. This is sort of like Mark chapter 2, verse 17, where Jesus says, Those who think that they are well see no reason to go to the doctor. They have no need for a physician. But those who see themselves as being sick, they need the doctor. Those who see themselves as being sinners will see and understand that they need help, that they need rescuing. And again, keep in mind that the people who are responding in verse 33 are the same people mentioned in verses 30 and 31. Now, these people who have begun to believe in Jesus and whom Jesus is teaching about what it really means to follow him, what's the very source of their identity? Sons of Abraham. And in their response in verse 33, they're, they're really showing they, they really haven't come to be genuine disciples of Jesus. They are not truly abiding in his word. What are they doing with his word? They're arguing against it and rebelling against it. Jesus says one thing, we're like, no way! And ultimately, their, their question that they ask at the end of verse 33, Jesus is going to answer that. How can he say that they need to be set free? Well, easy. Jesus is going to make a, a universal principle. And not just directed towards uh, that group of, of Jews in the temple on that day in the first century. He's going to make a principle that is going to be true for all humanity. And he makes this point emphatically. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, which if I were to, to do a modern paraphrase, I solemnly swear to you that what I am about to say is true. This is a fact of life. Jesus says the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. And when he says that the one who practices sin, he's not speaking of a, a one-time action. He's speaking of uh, a habitual practice. That you are continually sinning. And this has a, a two-fold implication here. Number one is that by sinning, we reveal that we are a slave to sin. And that's what is revealed. Because when, in that moment, when we choose to sin, who are we obeying? Sin. But then there's another aspect where when we practice sin, that sin further enslaves us. At the more we sin, we build those habits uh, more deeply rooted and they grow stronger in our lives. You can think of it this way. When sin first begins, it's like a single uh, strand of thread in our lives. But as, as we continue in that sin, uh, it works to enslave us even more so that singular thread becomes as big as a ship's cable in our lives. Right? And we can all identify that. We all, we all probably have sins in our lives that we have been struggling against for some time. Habits that we need to break, that need to change. Repentance needs to happen. That's what we see over and over again. This is the, the principle that Jesus is, is laying out here. 
And what's remarkable, sometimes in the, the, the world around us, we'll say that the Bible isn't relevant. Uh, that the, the truth of the Bible, it can't help us today. In one of the big areas, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about addiction. Right? How can you help counsel somebody when the Bible, the word addiction doesn't even occur there? Yeah, but just because the word addiction doesn't appear in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't speak about addiction. You know what the Bible uses instead of addiction? It uses the language of enslavement. The language of slavery. Romans chapter 6, a little beyond what I read earlier. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Or another verse that we've seen already this month in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Speaking of false teachers, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are in slaves or are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So addiction to anything is really to be, to be enslaved to an idol. Whether that would be alcohol, drugs, pleasure, entertainment, sports, anything else. We use the term addiction. The Bible says, no, you're, you have been enslaved to that. But whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And the Jews are, are protesting against the teaching of Jesus, saying, how dare you say that we need to be set free? And Jesus says, well, this is, this is true for everybody. Not just you. This is a, a universal truth. Because every person needs to be set free from sin. Because every single person who has ever lived, who is alive now, or who will live in the future before Christ returns, they will be enslaved to sin. That's our default position. And because that's our default position, we all need rescue. love the way D.A. Carson puts this. He says, For Jesus then... The ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against God who made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness, an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. And so, we, again, we see our desperate need talked about that a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 8, verses uh, 24 and 25, or just verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And this is, this is the common experience of all humanity. We are enslaved to those things that master us. From this, we can kind of piece together the experience of all those who are uh, non-disciples, all those who are our natural default position. And it's the exact opposite of what genuine disciples of Christ experience. Because uh, the world does not abide in Christ's word, they, they disobey. Because they don't abide in the word, they don't know the word, they are ignorant of what God is calling them to do. And they, they glory in their ignorance. And then, 
The natural result of that, logically, is that those who do not abide in Christ will not know the truth, and because they don't know the truth, the truth cannot set them free. It's a vicious, self-perpetuating cycle. And, and these characteristics are on display here in the Jews who have outwardly professed Christ, but they battle against His teaching and they refuse to submit their lives to Him. And they're characterized by disobedience, ignorance, and, and slavery. And yet they do not think that they need to be saved. They do not see any need that they need to be rescued. Again, that's the most dangerous spot to be in, right? To be a drowning man and to shoo away the lifeguard. I'm okay. That, that's all that's going to happen, right? But that's what we see here. It's on display here in the Jews. It's the common experience of all humanity. And this is the experience of every single believer before we came to know Christ. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the common experience of all humanity. But if we're, if we're honest for a moment, this is maybe the experience of some of us even now, where it seems like we are characterized by our battle against sin. And we feel enslaved, Right? Even though we've been set free, what do we tend to do? We tend to drift back to all of those former masters. We, we go back to the sins that formerly enslaved us. And each one of us, if we walk with Christ in faith, will be continually battling that temptation to return to those, those old ways of living. So how do we do that? How do we loosen the grip of sin in our lives? How do we break free from that? Well, it goes back to what Jesus said at the very beginning of our study. We must abide in His Word. And then we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That's what we see. Uh, and to illustrate that Jesus is the only one who can set us free, He points to a third and final experience in verses 35 and 36. These verses say this the slave does not remain in the house forever the son remains forever so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed now sometimes as as i'm reading through a passage of scripture i get confused of how jesus got to a certain point like he was just talking about this how in the world did he, did he come to talk about this this is one of those occasions you're like wait he was just saying that the truth will, will set you free. He's just saying that everyone who is a, a, a practices sin is a slave to sin. And then what in the world is he saying in verses 35 and 36? And it's initially confusing, but I think once we understand it, it's a powerful illustration. There, there's two statements made in verse 35. And he makes a statement about the status of slaves and the status of sons. Uh, and he's comparing it, what the, the experience of those two groups would be in a household in his own time. Uh, and he makes this point that 
the status of slaves in a household was temporary. Because at any given time, if you were a slave, you could be sold, you could be abandoned, you could be thrown out, you could be set free. Your status was kind of constantly could be changed. And he's going to, to contrast that transient nature of the status of slaves to the permanent status of sons. Slaves have a temporary status. Sons have a permanent status. Sons are always sons. And this connects back with what Jesus has said previously because in verse 34 was an answer to their question of how can you tell us that you're going to set us free? He says, well, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is enslaved to sin. In verses 35 and 36, go back and address their initial statement that they were children of Abraham. That they were Abraham's offspring. And what we're going to see here is, you ever watch those uh, daytime talk shows? It's okay to confess that right now. Uh, of Where something, some big family secret is going to be confessed. Right? And someone is going to be told that you know, they thought that they were uh, a child in this family, but they've actually been adopted. This is kind of what is taking place right now. Jesus is going to unveil the big secret about these Jews who have said that they are believing in him. They have thought that they are sons of Abraham. But Jesus says, no, you're actually slaves to sin. They thought they were in the family of God when they really were not. And again, Jesus, in saying this, is striking at the very heart of their assurance. Again, their immediate response. What do you mean we need to be set free? We're children of Abraham. Jesus says, well, not so fast. That's not really who you are. That's not really how you need to see yourself. Your hope is not in your identity as children of Abraham. Their only hope should be in Christ. He's the only one who can set them free. And that's what verse 36 is about. Because in verse 35, when Jesus did not say sons, rather he said the son. So he's not referring to Christians, but to himself. He is the son who has a position in the household of God that's going to never change. And he has full authority to set slaves free. And not just to set them free, but to bring them into the family. To adopt them so they're no longer slaves, but he brings them in. And now they are sons and daughters who have all of the rights and privileges of sonship. And now our status is unchanging. We don't have to worry about being dismissed and sent away. We are firm in the family of God. This is what we see here. If the Son has set you free... You will be free indeed. Now, of these three experiences that we've looked at this morning, which one of them most closely resembles your experience in life? Do you feel that your life is characterized by obedience to Christ's word, knowledge of his truth, and freedom from sin? Or do you see in your life that it is characterized more by disobedience to Christ, ignorance of his truth, and 
an enslavement to sin? Do you feel more like a slave of sin or a child of God? Right? And whatever conclusion that you come to, you then have to to measure it according to God's word. Because there are times that we might feel like slaves when we are actually sons. Right? And there are other times, other cases where we might feel and think that we are sons, but we are actually slaves. That's what we see this morning. And all of this serves to challenge us in a couple ways. First and foremost, may we clearly see our spiritual status. We clearly see that we are slaves to sin. That's what Christ came to set us free from. We were not in a spiritual danger of error. We were in spiritual darkness of sin. That's what enslaves us. May we clearly see our spiritual enslavement to sin. May we look to Jesus and his word to set us free from the bondage of sin. He is our only hope. He's the only one who can break the chains. And you see this every single year in New Year's resolutions. People are going to dedicate themselves to change. Is anyone still working on their New Year's resolution? We're almost through 25% of this year. Uh, It doesn't happen. But then, thirdly, may we be those who abide in the Word of Christ. Right? That's all of this began. If you're truly going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you've said that you believe in Him and you're going to follow Him, you have to abide in His Word. Otherwise, you're not truly His disciple. That's what Jesus is saying right here. An exciting thing about this morning is that in a few minutes we get to hear the testimony of someone who has been transformed. We get to hear the the testimony of someone who has been set free from the bondage of sin, who has now experienced the new life and the freedom that Christ promises. We're going to get to hear his testimony, and then we're going to get to witness his baptism going to be a sweet time of rejoicing and and celebration. So I'm going to close us uh, in prayer. And then at uh, at that point in time, parents, you'll be dismissed to go pick up your children. And and we we would love the children to be here because this is this is a wonderful teaching moment. Because I because I hope and pray that every single one of our children asks. Why is this happening? What does it mean? And we have a wonderful opportunity to tell our children about Jesus, what he has come to do, that we are all enslaved to the passions of our hearts. We are all enslaved to sin. And he is the only one who can set us free. And if he does set us free, we will be free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and worship you, even as you are worshiped in heaven, as the one who is worthy, because you went to the cross, because you bore our sin and our shame, because you endured the wrath that we deserved. And Jesus, we worship you and praise you and thank you 
that you have sent your spirit to live and dwell in all who believe in you. And that by the power of your spirit, as we abide in your word, you are able to lessen, to break, to remove the bondage of sin in our lives. May we look to you constantly in faith. May we continually abide in your word. May we be growing in knowledge. And may we experience the freedom that you promised to us. May you lead us and guide us toward that end for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Well, you are dismissed, and we will see you back here uh, at uh, 12 p.m. Uh, for the baptism. And again, if we could, uh, if you're sitting in those two back uh, gray uh, chair portions, if you could move your stuff, and we'll kind of stack chairs off to the side, uh, and we will get ready for the baptism.
All right. Uh, if you can hear me, uh, we are going to uh, move towards uh, the, the baptism. If you want to come and uh, grab a seat right here or stand uh, kind of there in the back, uh, we're excited to have uh, the live stream of this and to have it be recorded. But uh, come and find a seat and uh, draw near, uh, and we are going to begin in just a moment. All right. Well, baptisms are always joyous occasions. It, uh, it's a reason to, to celebrate the new life uh, and power in the gospel. And uh, gathering together today, we, we get to... Uh, exalt even as the Apostle Paul did in Romans 1.16, where he says, We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, and we have seen this gospel transform the life of the one who is about to undergo the waters of baptism. He's met with me and has borne clear confession of faith and uh, it changed life, uh, and we are going to, uh, to get ready to, to hear his testimony. Uh, but before we do that, let me uh, just go ahead uh, and pray for our time together. God of all grace, we who have trusted in Christ, remember your grace in our lives as we uh, recall how you have worked to save us through the life and ministry of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Because of our faith and trust in your Son, our sins were washed away. Our hearts and consciences have been made clean as we experienced a flood of deep love through your Son, Jesus. And as we prepare to, to baptize Colby this afternoon, we would lift him up to you, asking that you would continue to pour the love of Christ into his heart, that your word would be food for his soul, that you would guard him against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that you would use him to spread the gospel, that you would use him to build your church, and that one day he would stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And as we hear his testimony and witness his baptism, may we grow in wonder and thanksgiving at our having been buried with Christ in his death, and raised with him in his resurrection. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now some of you might be wondering, how cold is this water? Uh, and uh, some of you came up to it like, this is warm water. I know this, if, if it was an ice bucket challenge, we would really be confirming his commitment to Christ. Uh, but this is, this is warm water. And this is almost like cheating at baptism because... 
uh, Colby's dad, uh, who's going to get to baptize him. He doesn't even have to really get wet. Uh, so uh, he, he's enjoying that. But uh, this is a sweet, sweet moment. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, are the two ordinances that the Lord has given to his church uh, to mark out uh, who's a part of his church. Uh, and baptism is kind of the, the, the doorway, the, the entryway. It's a, a public identification uh, saying, I'm with Jesus. I, I'm going to be following him. Uh, his life is my life. His death is my death. And his resurrection is my resurrection to newness of life. Uh, and that is exactly what the act of baptism is intended to picture. Uh, it, it's a, uh, a physical display, a manifestation of the invisible spiritual reality that has already taken place in Colby's life. He has died with Christ, buried in the water, uh, and he has been raised to newness of life. That is what baptism is intended to portray. And this comes from uh, many passages in Scripture, but Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, additionally, uh, we want to gather together and have everybody here for this because we are, in essence, welcoming Colby into the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. There's one body and one spirit into which we are baptized. Uh, and so Colby is joining and is a part of that. And we are here to publicly acknowledge that and welcome him in. Uh, but before we perform the baptism, uh, Colby is going to come and share briefly uh, about his testimony of faith and how the Lord has worked in his life. And then his dad's going to come uh, and be able to, to have the privilege of baptizing him. Colby? Thank you guys for coming. Um, it's just an honor to be able to share this with you guys. Um, just before I start sharing my testimony, I just pray uh, for all of you here, if you don't hear anything about my life, just that you would simply the gospel um, through this, that you would hear what Christ has done for us. Um, and, and to my friends and family here who are watching, um, just that given your life to Christ, um, that you would hear the gospel through my testimony. A few minutes could not contain even a fraction of the wretchedness in my life. It also would not give me enough time to explain the divine miracle God has performed in my heart, but I will do my best to be brief. Growing up in a Christian household, I knew the basic gospel from the very beginning, that I am a sinner who Christ came and died for so that my sins would be forgiven, and that if I put my faith in him and repented of my sins, his righteousness would count as mine. I was truly blessed to grow up in a family who values this gospel message. However, not even a daily exposure to the Christian living of my family could pull me out of my slavery to sin. It took something much more powerful. For the most part, I was a very quiet kid. Externally, I seemed to have a loving heart because I followed rules well and knew what people wanted to see. Internally, I was completely dead, 
filled with pride. I had no regard for anything but myself, and I lived every day giving up my thoughts, affections, and soul to worldly things. I lived a typical Christian kid's life, praying the prayer at six years old, going to church every Sunday, but I avoided youth group at all costs. As time moved forward, my flesh began to take on many different forms of sin. In the eighth grade, I arrived in Meridian, Idaho, and got to build a new persona immediately. What I showed was not much different from my previous life, being a humble little follower who stayed away from drama, but sin only became greater in my heart. I was somewhat successful in athletics and indulged in the compliments and praises I received from it, only giving a typical humble deflection to gain more compliments of my character. I was obsessed However, a bad tree can only bear bad fruit, and every day my goody-good reputation slowly slipped through my fingers. I surrounded myself with zero Christian people and ate up the lifestyle the world was living around me. Due to the persona I wanted to keep, the process was slow, but my true desire started to show to these friends of mine. One thing led to the next, and by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was a cursing, lust-filled, pride-filled jock who played the system of relationships only for my own glory. Everything I did was simply to receive praise for myself. But this double life was starting to crumble in the face of my school, and I had no way of stopping my flesh. Soon they would realize that my double life was nothing more than a life lost to my selfish desires. I used to think that over time, my sin was worse and worse throughout my unsaved life. Looking back now, the only thing happening was the unveiling of my wretched over time. I knew exactly what I was doing. I was walking my way in hell. By one night, sophomore year, about a week before one of my big football games, the Holy Spirit stopped me in my tracks. I could not push out the nagging thought in my head that I was denying Christ's death on the cross. I knew that if I were to die in the foreseeable future, my destination was separation from Christ for eternity. There was just so much sin that was holding me captive, and I did not want to give them up. But ultimately, I knew that I would have to pick up my cross and turn to Christ. See, only he could bring me to turn from these idols. And that is exactly what happened. After literal hours of pacing in my dark room, tears and snot running down my face, my soul could not resist the sacrifice that Christ had made for my life. It truly became aware to me that I was spitting in the face of my Lord and Savior on the cross and rejecting everything he had offered me. I fell to my knees in pain and called my brother, praying that he would answer. As I heard him pick up, I began to sob even harder, screaming, Brother, I'm not saved. I'm just not saved. Please help me. All I knew was that I was done living for the pleasures of this life, willing to give up anything and everything. I wanted to lay my life down for Jesus Christ. I could not bear the ruthless chains of slavery to sin any longer. My heart was aching at the fact that I was so privileged to grow up in a gospel-filled house and yet still deny it day in, day out. The weight of the cross on my shoulders was unbearable. Truly, I was broken. Thanks be to God that I had my brother there to preach truth to my grieving heart. 
to be stern with me and tell me that this lifestyle I was living was utterly sinful in the sight of the Lord. Also share with me the good news of repentance and faith. He spoke of completely turning from my sinful ways and heading straight forward in his loving arms. I can only do this by the grace and power the good news due to the sacrificial blood of the God-man himself, his righteousness be credited by account of his divine love and power that the anger of the Father of my own sinful heart crushed Jesus on the cross. Because of the faith that the Lord granted me that night, I would side with him in paradise forever. Oh, how he loves us. I cried out to God. Truly my heart was changed. My eyes were opened to the cross. God, my heart knew, justified my life through Christ's death, and from there began to sanctify me. I had no idea what the word sanctify meant and was even less aware of how bad sanctification was going to hurt. But by the grace of God, he truly began to purify my life. From there on, my life as a born-again believer has not been as one would wish, but as the Lord willed. Slowly he was turning me from these sins that lived in my heart. It has been an absolute battle. However, I can clearly see my eyes have been opened wider to the reality of the cross, for I am truly dependent on it. Unfortunately, within the last year, I fell deeply into a new sin of partying and alcohol. And I wish I could expand on this part of my story much more. But ultimately, the Lord used it in magnificent ways to humble me and dig up major sins in my life. Again, only by His divine grace, He brought me to my knees before Him and set me on a path closer to Christ than ever before. Fellowship of Christ Church is now appealing to me. The Spirit has granted me unbelievable freedom from lust, pride, and much more. I still fall to many sins daily, fighting with my flesh, but the Lord grants me repentance. I can truly see that I am not who I used to be, and Christ is working within me. My mother has been encouraged me to be baptized for almost my whole life, but I was always hesitant because I wasn't sure of my faith. In a sense, I'm thankful that I waited until I was sure of my salvation. Today, I stand here in front of you all confident that I am saved by God's grace and have received eternal life through the Son. I couldn't be more excited to publicly declare my faith in front of you all. My story is not in any way special apart from the miraculous works of God. I am simply a sinner saved by grace, a grace that only one God can provide. With so much more to say, I pray that my baptism will not only encourage myself, but all of us together to remember the blood we were washed in, to press on in this life, to run the marathon for Christ, to be overflowing with the gospel, to to give glory to God forever and ever. Wow, that's pretty good. You know, it dawns on me how difficult it is for us to really feel the full weight of celebratory feelings that we should feel. And and really, honestly, our whole lives, 
and really even into eternity, we'll be understanding the ramifications of this. You know, and one of them was this morning. You, you were a slave, now you're a son. Uh, we, were, we were God's enemy, now, now you're his friend. You were bound for hell. Now instead of going into judgment, you simply get dunked in a little bucket of water. It seems kind of silly, but the alternative was horrendous. And, and yet here we are because God died for your sins. You don't have to. And we just identify with that death this morning. If you go and die to your old self and, and tell everybody here that, that I, I have been raised again in, into new life. And, you know, Paul, Paul tells us in, in Corinthians that, that we are to set everything aside to tell this story because we want other people to get in this and to tell the same story you've told. And, and here in this moment, I think we kind of sense that. Like, why do I let other things encumber me? This is so important. And even as a parent, you look back and go, man, I wish I'd done a better job. Aren't we all thankful that it's, that it's God that works in our hearts and it's not up to us? It's such a, a, a responsibility, and it is that. But I'm so thankful that it's, that it's God that changed your life and changed your heart. And here in this moment... Uh, the, as you enter uh, and, and, and confess to the world that you're entering in to this body of believers, and we are saying as one that we, we want nothing in our lives that's going to stop us from, from making this merit message the most important thing that we do. And as we look around and look at nieces and nephews and friends, and I know, you know one of the neat things, Colby, with you has been to watch the fruit in your life uh, I really believe that that is the paramount concern for you, that that you would spend eternity with, with those people. And so this is not just a, a silly religious symbol. It is something that we'll spend all eternity fully understanding the ramifications of. And, 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 it, and it's, so it's such a wonderful time and a privilege to be here. And I thank you all for, for breathing into, into, into Colby's life. And so go ahead and... Uh, Jump into pleasantly warm water. I was really disappointed with that, by the way. So, Colby, just a, a couple of questions. Do you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do. Do you confess that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised again on the third day? I do. Do you place? Are you placing today and have placed and and are are are, are confessing to us that uh, you are placing your trust in Christ alone for your salvation? I do. Well, based upon that confession of faith. Amen. Well, why don't we all uh, stand uh, and let's sing the doxology together as we just praise and worship uh, God uh, who has worked in Colby's life and uh, in so many lives here.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, we worship you and thank you for working in Colby's life in so many ways. We pray that you would hold him fast in your hand, that he would abide in your word, that he would grow in his knowledge of your truth, uh, and that you would continue to set him free uh, from the power of sin. Lord, may he glorify you uh, in all that he says, all that he thinks, and all that he does. And may we as a church body be here to encourage him, to challenge him, to disciple him, uh, and uh, uh, to pour into his life, even as he uses his spiritual gifts to build up our own church body. We lift him up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, or chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say, Now may the, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That is our prayer for Colby. Uh, and with that, uh, you are all dismissed. May you go and serve the Lord this week. Amen.